For our message today, we're going to spend a good portion of our time in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 2. So if you want to turn there in a Bible, if you've got one with you, or you want to use one of those pew Bibles, you can do that. If you just want to follow on the screen, you can also do that as well. But um, as you're turning there, I want to remind those of you who have been here with us, and maybe uh, inform some of you who are maybe with us for the first time, that we are in a series, and we're talking about what it looks like to be people of the kingdom, And it centers on a framework that um, Alex, one of our teaching pastors, gave us the first week of this series. And here it is. Here's what he said. I just want to remind you of this. He said, if we're followers of Jesus, then we are citizens of his kingdom. And if we are citizens of his kingdom, then we live distinctly from citizens of other kingdoms. And that's the framework we're we're building on, that we see things unconventionally, that we interpret events that are taking place uniquely, and that we navigate things distinctly from the people of other kingdoms. And and I think probably one of the, the greatest or most challenging aspects of this is that we live by different operating principles in this world than everybody else. And I I say that's the most challenging because we have been trained, um, we have been guided to think that the world works a particular way, that this is the way the world works, this is the system, and so we just begin to live our lives and follow that exact same system. And so one of the greatest challenges is that when a person begins to follow the way of Jesus, when we say, okay, I want to be a Jesus person and I want to follow his way, It's far easier for you and I to adapt the teachings of Jesus to our thinking rather than allowing his operational principles to reshape our thinking. Are you with me on this? Like it's much easier because of our training, because of the groove that we find ourselves living in. It's way easier for us to say, well, Jesus, why don't you come help me do life the way that I think it should work rather than saying, is there a different way that I should be living in this world? So Jesus reshapes how we operate. And so the heart behind this series is to walk through a number of of key differences between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdoms of this world and then lean into those differences that we might become people of the kingdom. That's the idea. Sort of like this. When I was growing up, uh, there are certain things that would happen, like I'd have friends that were going to do something, and, uh, and, or something would happen in my life, and I would get frustrated and communicate. I, lived in, I grew up in a highly communicative uh, home, if in case you didn't know that, maybe you couldn't figure that out. We talked a lot in my house, like dinner time was like family debate, and uh, we didn't argue, it was just robust dialogue, that's what I like to call it, right? So we were very verbal, and so things would happen in my life, and I'd go to my parents, I'd be like, I don't like that this happened, and I'm going to do this, or whatever, or maybe my friends were doing something, and I wanted to go do it, and whatever the case was, there was this thing my dad would say to me, say it all the time, I just remember all growing up, my dad would look at me, and he'd go, that's not how Williamses respond, that's not the Williams way, we're Williams, and we do things differently than everybody else, and then he would go on, sometimes too long, and tell me all the ways that Williamses are different than everybody else, right? But that's kind of the idea here. It's, it's that there's a way that Jesus understands love. There's a way that Jesus does peace. There's a way that Jesus uh, thinks about power and justice and freedom and truth. And the idea, the idea behind this series is to answer the question, what does it look like to be people characterized by these things the way that Jesus describes these things? You with me on this? And I think every one of them, as we walk through this, you're going to discover it's a departure from the way our culture or our society or the world tends to think about these things. 
Um, but that being said, I think the one we face today is particularly challenging. Today, we're talking about being people of power. What does it mean to be people of power the way that Jesus thinks about it? And, and as we begin to kind of dive into this, I want to share a few ideas regarding this, the, the controversial, misunderstood subject of power. Just for a moment, I want you to think about these words that Abraham Lincoln said. He said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Or this, from Dr. King, he said, our scientific power has outrun our spiritual power. We have guided missiles and misguided men. John F. Kennedy said this, the problem of power is how to achieve its responsible use rather than its irresponsible and indulgent use of how to get men of power to live for the public rather than off the public. I particularly like this one from Margaret Thatcher. She said, power is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. <laughs> and then finally, this little thing that Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, he said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. So it doesn't take much thought, it doesn't take much exploration to come to the realization that power is a controversial topic and it is a corruptible force. It is mishandled, it is misunderstood. It's, it's amazing because at, at the center of some of the greatest achievements in human history is this thing called power and yet simultaneously some of the greatest atrocities in human history are built on power. So today I want to clear the air. I want, to, I want to get rid of the confusion. I want to clean up our understanding of power, especially as it relates to, to Jesus, because this is personal. This is not about how people think about power or use their power out there. This is not about their power out there. This is about you. This is about me and about what's happening inside of our own hearts. That's what this is about. And so I want to clear things up by talking about three specific things. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down. We're going to talk about the problem of power. We're going to talk about the illusion of power. And then we're going to talk about kingdom power, the power of the kingdom. So those three things. So first, the problem of power. And, and the source of the, of the problem, as you can imagine, it's rooted inside of us, right? It's rooted inside of us. It's in our hearts. And it, and it starts with something that um, might be exemplified in you today. Could be, for some of you in the room, maybe a lot of you in the room, the moment I start talking about power, you think to yourself, well, I don't have power. In fact, I feel powerless right now. I wish I had power, but there's other people that have power. They're exerting their power over me, and I don't like the power other people have. And maybe when we start talking about power, you think to yourself, I'm not a person of power. Why? In fact, I want more power, but I don't have it. And therein lies the source of the problem of power, our own insecurity about power and dependency. That's where the problem rises up. All of us, no matter who we are, we all struggle with feelings of powerlessness or, or feelings of dependency on others. It is deep inside of us. Um, maybe, maybe you've noticed this in yourself or maybe you've noticed it in other people. Uh, have you ever noticed when somebody offers to help you with something, your knee-jerk reaction is always, no, 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 I'm okay. You ever notice that? Someone says, hey, you need a hand with that? Our first reaction is always, no, no, I got it, right? Like you can, I can be coming in the house with like two bags of groceries in each hand, my keys in my mouth. I'm opening the door with my elbow and holding back the dog with my foot. And, and Sherry will say, do you need a hand? I'm like, no, no, I'm good. You know, like, <laughs> why do we do that? Why do we insist 
on not getting help. Well, what's behind that? It's pride, right? I like to feel like I've got things under control. I don't like to admit that I'm dependent on other people. And that is all about power. Or how about this? And th- this might mess with some of you. Um, have you ever thought about why we hate debt so much? Uh, I'm not saying it's good, by the way. <laughs> I'm, not just, I'm not saying debt is a good thing. But why do we hate it so much? I've got to be careful here. All you like uh, Dave Ramsey people are going to send me emails <laughs> if I'm not real careful, right? <laughs> but think about this. We call the opposite of being in debt financial freedom. Again, I'm ruffling some feathers here. But I know a lot of people who have paid off their mortgages and they've zeroed out all their credit cards and they're anything but free. Right? So, so, so why... Why do we hate debt so much? Well, it's our distaste for dependency. We feel like somebody has power over us, and it's so strong, we can't stand it. The same is true with authoritative instruction. Someone tells us what to do. We don't like people telling us what to do, what we can or can't touch. We want power. We want control. And it is deep inside of us, and it goes way, way back for humanity. In fact, Genesis, it's the account of the history of humanity, and ultimately the Hebrew people as told by Moses. And we often lose sight of the purpose behind the book of Genesis. Uh, Moses isn't just telling us where we came from. He's also telling us why we are the way we are. Like you see this thing about humanity and you go, well, why, why is humanity that way? Or you see that other thing. Why, why do humans do this? We can always go back to Genesis and we see it. We just see it over and over again. So in those early chapters of Genesis... God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and then he says, okay, look around. All this stuff is yours. The trees, the bushes, the grass, the fruit, the vegetables, the the animals, the birds, the fish, all of it. Like, you got it all. Like, everything around you. Like, just look around. Everything is yours. But there's this one tree, and I just, just stay away from the one tree. And then you turn to chapter 3, and there's this resistance. Why did he say we couldn't touch that one thing? You have everything. But what are they obsessed with? Don't touch this thing. There's this resistance to the limits that have been placed on them. They feel finite. They feel beholding to someone, like God has something that they don't. And that limitation turns into rebellion. Why? Because we want power over our own destiny. Don't tell me what to do. I should be able to do everything I want. And so there is this quenchless thirst for power and control, and Genesis is identifying this being at the heart of every human. We want power and control. And what's ironic is it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter how much power you have, we still want this. Earlier I asked you to turn to Daniel chapter 2, and and I want to look there because the setting of Daniel, uh, it's the 6th century B.C., so hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, and there's a new empire that has risen up in the land. There's, uh, there's been the Assyrians, there's been the Egyptians, but now there's the Babylonians, and they are more powerful than any nation that's come before them. And, and they, they invade Judah, they conquer Jerusalem, they, ca- 
carry away the brightest, the smartest people from Jerusalem to the city of Babylon to assimilate them. And in Daniel, we meet the king and the general of the Babylonian people. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most powerful humans in history. Like, you can just take all of human history and say, like, who wielded power like him? There are very few who had his kind of influence. Most powerful. (laughs) And yet Daniel reveals something about him that is telling about all human beings. So Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, it says this. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And so the king summoned magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Now, we later find out that the dream is about this giant figure that he sees And it's this glorious figure that's made of all of these different materials. The head is made of gold. The shoulder and chest is silver and then bronze and then iron. And then it has these feet of mixed iron and clay signifying some sort of of weakness. And then in his dream, as he's gazing at this statue, there's a rock that comes flying in, strikes the feet of this statue, and the statue crumbles to the point of dust, and it blows away, and there's nothing left but this stone. And so he wakes up in a sweat, right? And he's just wondering, there's this beautiful, towering, powerful figure, and now it's been destroyed, and his natural inclination was to think, is it me? Is that a symbol of me? Am I, is, is that my kingdom? And I have all this power and I'm going to be struck away and just be, be eradicated? Am I going to lose my powerful, the most, lose my power? The most powerful man in the world is worried about losing his power. That is the problem of power. No matter how much power we ever attain, our insecurities, our wiring, it's bound to take over. And the only way we think we can overcome whatever it is we're feeling is to try to get more power, try to get more control, to always obsess about what we don't have. This is what's behind what I'll refer to as the if I could just movement that exists in our hearts. You ever do this? You ever play the if I could just and then you fill in the blank? Like let's go back to paying off houses. If we could just pay off the house. Oh, if I could just get a job making this much money. Oh, if I could just live in this climate where it didn't rain 365 days a year. You know, if I could just, right? (laughs) If I could just get to a particular position or place then, well, then we all know you wake up the next day and there's something else you could just, right? I mean, how many times have we made this goal and you get there and the day you reach it, you have another one that crops up? And And how many times has that thing really been about us finally getting to a place where we think we have a bit more control or a a bit more freedom, which is ultimately about having a bit more power? See, we don't realize it, but that thing that was happening all the way back there in Genesis chapter 3, it's still going on in our hearts right here. It's still happening We still do all these things to try to exert our power on other people. Maybe it's this workplace skirmish that's going on, and and you make this power play at work, and you know what you're trying to do is assert yourself. You want more power. Or maybe you're just the neighbor that bullies people on next door. Anyone know that person? (laughs) You got the next door app, and you're just that mean person? Or do you ever abuse the server at the restaurant? You're demanding and never happy. 
All of that is really the same thing. All of that is us striving for power. No matter how petty or how punishing, we want power. We resist. We bristle under the idea that we don't have all of the control. And that's the problem with power. It's like drinking salt water. And the only way out is to realize the second thing that I want to talk about, and that's the illusion of power, the illusion of control. So let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nobody knows how to interpret his dream. In fact, it was really interesting because Nebuchadnezzar didn't tell anybody what his dream was. Talk about like a tough job. Tell the most powerful man in the world what his dream's about, but he's not going to tell you what the dream was. You have to figure that out for yourself. And so nobody knows. Nobody knows what he's talking about. Of course they didn't know what he was talking about. They weren't there in his dreams. But then Daniel is one of these exiles that's been taken from Jerusalem. He's a Hebrew living in Babylon. And he comes forward and says, I can tell you what you dreamt and I can tell you what it meant. And so we read this in verse 31. He says, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. By the way, (laughs) this is the last time I ever complain about rain in church. (laughs) Or maybe he's getting the rest of it out. Like, let's just get it out of our system. Let it rain while we're in church. So those of you watching online, it is really loud in here and we can hear the rain. And those of you in dry climates watching, we are jealous of you. Um, But what's going on in this passage? Well, Well, Daniel has just described what we discover later is he's described the kingdoms of men. The gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron. It's describing all of these kingdoms, the present one and then the future ones that would come. Each kingdom represented by a different segment of the statue. And what do these things represent? Well, they represent human power. They represent human achievement. They represent human civilization, the commerce, the culture, the accomplishments, all of these things. And so he describes this. There are all these kingdoms, and some more beautiful, more powerful than others, but then there's this stone, the stone that is cut out not by human hands, he says. Well, what does this mean? Well, it means that this statue is carved out by human hands. This is all human power. This is human achievement. But then this stone, it has nothing to do with human power. It has nothing to do with human achievement. This thing came from God. Notice, in fact, notice the material. It's made of stone. Everything in the statue, humanity would have looked at and said, look how beautiful and valuable and wonderful it is. And then there's this stone that comes from God. Humanity is not going to recognize its value, and yet it's the most powerful thing in the world. A few verses later, Daniel describes it in verse 44. He says, In the time of those kings, speaking of the kings represented in the feet, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. He's describing the kingdom of Jesus. It's the kingdom of Jesus. And this dream was a call to humility and confrontation of this illusion that we have that we are in control and that we have power. God is saying to the most powerful human being in the world 
and therefore all other humans that would follow after him, that any power we might have is not achieved by us, it is granted by God. Any power we have is a gift from God. And if you think you earned it, well, that's just an illusion that you've gained. We have very little real power over our lives. Do you ever think about this? I mean, most of what determines the course of our lives, who you are today, it's outside of your control. You didn't get to pick the century you were built in, bi- built in, born in, right? Born, built, born, whatever. Um, the geography that you're born in, you didn't get to choose that. The family you were born into, you didn't get to choose that. The physical stature that you have, you didn't get to choose that, right? Your, your, your talents, your capacity to learn, your IQ, you didn't choose any of those things. All of those things are given to you by God. We don't choose those things. We're the, we're the product of basically three things. We're the product of genetics, we're the product of our environment, and we're the product of our personal choices. Those three things, that's what makes you up, which means two-thirds of those things you have zero control over. Your genetics and the environment that you've lived in, you had no control over. In fact, most people have determined that about 90 to 95% of who we are is determined by those first two things. That's why I cringe, by the way, I hear this mantra in today's culture, like people telling kids, you can be anything you set your mind to. No, you can't. (laughs) You can't, right? You can't. In fact, just this last week, unrelated, my son-in-law was telling me about his friend from high school who was a really great basketball player, went on to play basketball in college. I think he did a short stint on the the practice squad for the Blazers, but it was his dream to become a pilot. All of his life, he he wanted to be a pilot. And, and, And so when he graduated from college, he... He paid for flight school, went to flight school. They took his money. They enrolled him. He got there. In his first week, they were taking all the students, and they were going to climb into the flight deck of of the plane. And and he goes out there, and he realizes in this moment, like paid the money. The instructor's like helping him onto the plane. He realizes his 610 frame doesn't fit in the flight deck of a plane. And there's like this moment where the instructor's looking at him, and he's in his like lifelong dream is shattered. I thought I could do anything I set my mind to, right? So he became a lawyer, and that's what he's doing today, right? (laughs) See, we live with this illusion of power, like, oh no, I I can do all these things, but when the kingdom of God is revealed, we're given a choice. We're given a choice, the same choice that Nebuchadnezzar had. See, he was being invited into this humble admission that there is one all-powerful one who is before all and above all others. And I want you to see how he responded. In verse 46, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. This week, Alex and I, we went and grabbed coffee, and we were talking about this idea, um, this, this term that has come to describe how most people in our culture are operating in their faith. And it's a term that emerged out of some research and surveys that, that, were, that were done a few years ago, but it's called moralistic therapeutic deism, is really the way that most people are living in their faith today. And let me just explain what this means. Moralistic means that people believe that God blesses good people who live decent lives. That's kind of the general idea behind being moral, right? That's the moral part. Live a good life, be decent, 
That's, that's what you're supposed to have faith for. And then secondly, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good. That's the therapeutic part, right? Not about sacrifice, not about serving others, but it's about feeling good. So I'm just gonna live a decent life and I wanna feel good. And then the last part is this, that they really believe God exists, that he created things, but he's really not actively involved in the world today. Only if things get really dicey, then God might get involved. That's the deism part. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And it turns out if you believe this way, then you can have command over your entire life, can't you? Then you are are the captain of your own ship, right? Now you are the captain of your own fate. Now you have all the control. It's just one more example of the illusion of power that we have. We have a choice. We can live in the illusion or we can live in the kingdom. We can live in the kingdom. So I want to talk about the power of the kingdom, and I I want to talk about two things. The power we have and the power we need. So first, the power we have. And the big idea behind this is that you do have power. Uh, And I didn't write this sermon and deliver it to tell you that you're powerless and make you fatalistic about your life. Like, you have no control, so just go live your, your life. No, on the contrary, it's intended to see the power that you do have. Rather than fixating on the power you don't, or the influence you don't, or the control you don't, it's to allow you to see the power you do have and place it in proper perspective. It's a reorientation so that instead of always thinking about what you could do, think about what's possible now in front of you. Not striving for more, but stewarding what we have. And that's what happens when we go back to the garden, right? Um, Doesn't it always look silly? Like you look at that story of Adam and Eve, and they have everything. You're like, guys, it's just one tree. Just, I mean, it looks ridiculous. Like, for humanity's sake, think about this before you do it, right? Like, but there's that one thing, and we look at it, and we go, it's just so ridiculous that they, just one thing they couldn't have. And we, we think, are you kidding me? But what if we could see our own lives so clearly? I want you to understand the power that you have been given or gifted from God. And I want to invite you to steward it accordingly. God has given you agency. He's given you influence. He's given you the capacity, all of us in different places, certainly different levels. We can't argue about that. But no matter who you are, God has given you power and control over things at work, over things in your neighborhood, in your family, in your relational circle. He's given you agency. He's gifted this to you. And rather than thinking about what you don't have, it's this call to say, how do I use this for him? Which is why I want to talk about the power we need. What's the power we need? You know, one of the myths that I think circulates among Christians today, and it's evidenced in the way that, the way that we behave, is found in the way that we use and obtain power in our culture as Christians. Let me just put this out there. If we obtain power, if our methods of obtaining power are no different than the world's, and, and, and if the way we wield our power is no different than the world, then is it really kingdom power? If the way we get it and the way we use it looks exactly the same, maybe that's just worldly power with a Jesus twist, and it's not really the power of Jesus. Because Jesus does things differently. There's this moment when he's with his disciples. John chapter 13. They're having this meal together, and they skip a very important cultural moment. 
Anytime a group would have gathered for a meal like this one, they would have met a servant at the door who would have washed their feet before they reclined at the table. Jesus and his disciples, they show up to this dinner and there's no servant there. Rather than somebody saying, nope, I'll, I'll take this responsibility, they just blow past it. Everybody just sits down with their dirty feet at the table and kind of ignores this social faux pas. Why? Because the disciples are still living under the operational principles of worldly power. They still believe if one of us stoops so low, we lose our credibility, we lose our influence, we relinquish our power in this small group of people, so I can't be the one to do that. Somebody else needs to do that. You're lower than me. You do this sort of thing. But then we read this. Middle of the meal, John 13, verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he came from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Do you notice what verse 3 said? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And he knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. So he got up and took the towel and the basin. Knowing the power that he had, knowing where he came from, knowing where he was going, allowed him to get up. Now was Jesus, question for you, was Jesus relinquishing his power? No. If anything, Jesus is redefining power, isn't he? What our society would see as relinquishing, Jesus sees as this redefinition. Think about this. What would happen if we shattered the social order by embracing the power that we have in Jesus' way? What would happen to our culture? What if the security of knowing where our power came from and knowing where we've come from and where we're going, what if all of that gave us the freedom to hold our power with an open hand? And, and what if we could slay this idolatry of power by turning our culture's notion of what it means upside down? What, what if we came to realize that the power we've been given is used by those who are followers of the way of Jesus to restore things, to cultivate God's creation, to build things, to encourage people? What if we came to realize that all of the power, all of the agency we have was given to us for that purpose? So at that moment when Jesus takes the basin and the towel, he made it clear how the power of the kingdom looks, doesn't he? That, that grace of Jesus, that can heal that saltwater thirst we have for power he shows us another way. And, and by redefining power through service, think about this. He becomes the most influential, therefore the most powerful person in the history of the world. Do you ever think about this? Jesus, through serving, became the most influential person in history. When we see how that works, we recognize when we understand that the most powerful person in history gave his life so that we could find life, that doesn't just redefine power. 
That redefines us. That redefines our identity. And then there's this irony in all of this that the only way you and I ever become the kind of secure, the kind of confident, the kind of humble, just people who use power rightly is by receiving the sacrificial power of Jesus that he offers us. When you and I acknowledge that that's what Jesus did for us, that's when we move into his way and walk with him. And so the call as people of power is a call to use our agency, to use our, our influence, our power in the manner in which Jesus used it for us. Amen? Would you pray with me? Jesus, open our eyes. Open our eyes and allow us to see not the vacancy of power in our life, but the gift that you've given us. Allow us to see the influence that we have. Allow us to see the, 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 the capacity we have to, to change and to move and to serve people around us. Allow us to move into those spaces with the confidence and the security that comes from knowing you and what you've done for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? Next week, a um, couple things real quickly. Next week, uh, we're doing pancakes again. So, yeah, I love it. Um, so far, every time we've done pancakes, I'm gone. <laughs> Not this next week. And so I'm going to make up for lost time, and you'll see me before the 11 o'clock service eating like a giant stack of pancakes. So um, come early next week. There's a lot of people that hang out early, so come like 10, 10.30 and, uh, and get some pancakes with us. And then also next week, you know, um, I, I just like to remind us of this. We are an international and multi-ethnic church. And, uh, you know, we translate in seven, yeah. We translate in seven languages every single weekend. Uh, it goes all over the world. It's really just a beautiful thing. Not long ago, my wife and I were at a dinner party with some friends. There were like 16, 17 people there. And uh, all but her and I and one other couple spoke English as our first language. And it was just a great reminder of like just our, our community and what we're like. And one of the fun things we've been doing is every quarter lately, um, Central Victoria, who also meet here on our campus, um, they join us. And so next week, they're going to be with us. Israel's going to be leading worship with his team and our team kind of mashed together. And uh, it's just another great time for us to be that body. So um, looking forward to next week. It's going to be really great. But with that, I'm going to offer the benediction if you're willing Maybe hold out your hands and I'll offer this to you. May you be men and women who move past the illusions of power and may you steward the power that you've been given. And may you be people of power in the places you work, in your families, in your neighborhoods, with your friends, the way that Jesus is, in his name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.